we can ever fully conceive the incredible love that God had for us as his enemies when he sent his son to die in our place. That's amazing, amazing. I hope you never get over that great truth. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the love of such an infinite, glorious God who is enthroned in majesty and who holds all things together and who loves fallen people, people who are your enemies like us. And for the demonstration of that love in sending Jesus to pay for our sin debt in full so that we could be your children. We don't fully comprehend that kind of love, but we are eternally grateful for it. We would ask that this morning as we look into your word and we behold Christ, that you would shape our hearts by your spirit to be more like him. And that as we leave today, we would leave encouraged and challenged and strengthened because of the good news of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's great to be with you this morning and so thankful for what God is doing in this church, uh, the church that I am part of. We pray for you um, nearly every Sunday in our corporate worship service and are eager to see God continue to do his work uh, here in Lawrence through you. I want to just, before we get going, especially uh, say hello uh, to my grandson, Elijah, who isn't feeling well, who's watching at home. So hi, Elijah. Good to see you. Miss you. Uh, In our time together this morning in the Word, we're going to be looking at a verse with which you are Uh, likely uh, very familiar. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 2 this morning. There has been a lot of talk in recent years about the subject of identity, mainly about how people choose to identify themselves. You may remember several years ago that Rachel Dolezal was a a rising star in the black community. She was president of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the NAACP. She was a teacher of African studies at Eastern Washington University. But in 2015, Dolezal was forced to resign her positions. Why? It's because she was living with a false identity. Rachel Dolezal claimed to be a black woman, but was actually a white woman born to two white parents. You see, your identity is not what you claim it to be. Your identity is who you are. Now, a person can be identified by a lot of different things depending on the category. For instance... If you wanted to identify me genetically, I'm a man. If you wanted to identify me physically, I am six foot one and a half, 205 pounds, but working on that. 
if you wanted to identify me eth, uh, eth, uh, ethnically, I am from European descent. If you wanted to identify me nationally, I am an American. If you wanted to identify me professionally, I am a pastor. If you wanted to identify me maritally, I am a husband. And if you wanted to identify me familially, I am a father and a grandfather. Each of these things individually describe something about me. However, even collectively, none of these descriptors identifies who I actually am. Now, the subject of identity is a huge issue today. Western culture insists that we recognize and celebrate people who identify as something other than they actually are. Whether it is a female who identifies as male or a male who identifies as female or even a human who identifies as an animal, they're called Therians, we are being pressured to recognize and celebrate these other identities as legitimate. But your identity isn't what you want it to be. It is who you actually are. So the question this morning is, who are you? Who are you? What is your identity? As we will see from Galatians 2.20, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then that is your identity. That is the most significant thing about you. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, this is who I am. This is my identity. Now, he could have said that his identity was his ethnicity as a Jew. He could have said it was his education as a Pharisee or his citizenship as a Roman or his calling as an apostle. But while these things certainly describe something significant about Paul, not one of them defined Paul. Now, in this letter to the believers in Galatia, Paul has been declaring that a right standing before God is not obtained by keeping the law or by becoming Jewish through the rite of circumcision. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And Paul has stated that to claim otherwise is actually to believe a different gospel. Therefore, Paul insists that when people trust in Jesus Christ, what is true of him is also true of them. In other words, Jesus becomes their identity. Now, in this verse, Paul reveals four foundational reasons why a believer's identity is Jesus Christ. If you are a believer this morning... This is your identity, and this is why it is your identity. First, if you're a believer, your identity is Jesus Christ because you died in him. 
And Paul begins looking back to Jesus' crucifixion and he declares this, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, when Jesus Christ was crucified, I was crucified with him. In a very real sense, if you are a believer, when Jesus died on the cross, you were there and you were joined to him in his death. You say, how? Because I feel very much alive at the moment. So how was I joined to Jesus in his death? When Jesus was crucified, listen, when he was crucified, he died in your place. He suffered as your substitute. And as he hung on the cross, every sin you ever committed or ever will commit was placed on him and he paid sin's awful penalty. So when you came to saving faith in Christ, you became identified with Jesus in his death. So in a very real sense, the old you died. What this means is that the you who hated God, the you who lived for self, the you who trusted in your own efforts, the you who rejected God, the you who went your own way and did your own thing, that you died. Like Paul, you have been crucified with Christ. Now, the question is, what specifically did you die to when you became identified with Christ in his crucifixion? Well, in the context of the book of Galatians, there are a few things you died to when you were crucified with Christ. For instance, in Christ, you died to the law. In the context of Galatians 2.20, Paul is arguing that attempting to keep the law as a means of being made right before God is pointless. Why? Because the law is actually what condemned us as lawbreakers. Look at what Paul said in verse 19. He said, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, under the law, you were guilty. You couldn't keep the law perfectly, and this made you a law breaker. And so the law condemned you. You see, failing to keep the law perfectly actually made you accountable for all of it. James writes in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And what does the law require for all who violate it? Death. So before you were saved, you were under the just condemnation of God's righteous wrath for all eternity. However, here's the good news. When Jesus was crucified, something happened for you that forever changed that. Jesus took your sin, the sin that made you a lawbreaker, as guilty before God. He took your sin upon himself. And when Jesus took your sin upon himself, he was judged in your place 
and was found guilty. So under the law, Jesus died the death that you deserve. And his death satisfied the Father's wrath against your sin. And so the moment that you were saved, you died to the law. And the condemnation that the law required of you as a lawbreaker was forever broken. Now, what this means practically is that the law no longer has power to condemn you as a sinner because Jesus' death satisfied the law's righteous demand. So in this way, Jesus' death under the law was your death to the law. But that's not all you died to. You not only died to the law, but in Christ, you also died to sin. You also died to sin. Now, Paul makes a very interesting statement in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Here's what he says. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Why, Paul? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, when you were crucified with Christ, the powerful death grip that sin had over your life was shattered and you were no longer enslaved to sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 11, that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider here means to regard something as a reality. And what you are to consider as a reality is that you really are dead to sin. Because the old you died to sin, you no longer have to respond to it as a master. That's why in Romans 6.12, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, sin is no longer your master. You are under new management now. Because you were crucified with Christ, you died to sin and are now free from its reign over your life. So in Christ, you died to the law, you died to sin, but that's not all. In Christ, you also died to the world. Back in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, I have been crucified to the world and it's been crucified to me. Now, what does Paul mean by the word world here? The Bible uses the word world in different ways depending on the context. Sometimes the word world refers to the planet on which we live. Sometimes it refers to the people who live on this planet. However, here, as well as many other places, the Bible refers to the world as a philosophy, as an ideology, as an organized system of values and beliefs. So in this sense, the world as a system is an organized ideology that is headed by Satan, who is the god with a little g of this age. And the dominant characteristic of this world system is that it excludes God from everything. 
You see, before you were saved, you were in bondage to this world system, and you left God out of everything. He didn't matter to you. You didn't consider him in your decisions. You only lived for yourself. And so what characterized the world characterized you. The sinful desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life all characterized your life, what you were about. However, through Jesus' death, you died to this world system. And now God is at the center of everything you do. Your values are different. Your priorities are different. Your goals are different. And so while you may still do what the world does, you live in its houses, you drive its cars, you work its jobs, you shop in its stores, while you may still do what the world does, you don't do what the world does in the way the world does it. And the world does what it does in such a way that leaves God out. Now that you were in Christ, God is the center of everything you do because you were crucified to the world system. So when you were crucified with Christ, you died to the law, you died to sin, and you died to the world. Then fourth, in Christ, you also died to the flesh. In Galatians 5, verse 24, Paul says that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The question is, all right, Mike, what is the flesh? What is the flesh? Well, the flesh is more than your body. The flesh is, is your yet-to-be-glorified humanness that still yearns for its desires to be gratified. The flesh is that part of us that wars against the Holy Spirit of God and strives for preeminence in our lives. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you wanna do. So the flesh is that part of us that makes us want to exalt ourselves and love ourselves and serve ourselves and coddle ourselves. You see, as long as we are in this world, as long as we are physically alive, the flesh remains. So in what way did you crucify the flesh? Well, it's in this sense. When you were saved, you were actually set free from the power that the flesh had over your life. This is why your desires and affections are now different. The inclinations of the flesh are now less prevalent in your life because your spiritual DNA in Christ enables you to grow. 2 Peter 1.4 says that you have become a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So your identity is Jesus Christ because you died with him. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Now there's a second reason that your identity is Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, then your identity is Jesus because you are alive in him. 
You see, being crucified with Christ is only part of why he is your identity. You see, while the old you died with Christ, there is also a new you that is alive in Christ. Look at Galatians 2.20 again. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And then notice this statement. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. All right, so Paul, what is the deal here? What is it? Are you dead or are you alive? I think Paul would say both. He would say the old me died, but at the same time, there is a new me who is spiritually alive. But the source of that life is not me, it is Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, the moment that someone is saved, they are regenerated by the Spirit of God and granted spiritual life. What this means is that the old you died, but a new you is alive in Christ. This new you looks away from trusting in self and now trusts in Christ. The new you no longer lives in bondage to sin, but now lives under the rule of Christ. The new you no longer pursues what the flesh wants, but rather pursues what Christ wants. So this new you has a new purpose and a new agenda because Christ's life is now your life. What kind of life is that? John, verse, uh, John 20, verse 31 says that by believing in Jesus Christ, you are given life in his name. Well, what kind of life? Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. This is the resurrection spiritual life that you have in Christ. The moment that you believed in the Son of God and were saved, you were given this resurrection life. So now, when your body dies physically, you don't just cease to exist. You will continue to live eternally through the resurrection life that you now possess in Christ. Turning your Bibles forward just a few pages to Ephesians 2, the passage that Andrew read for us this morning. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 says that you had no spiritual life before Christ. Paul says it this way. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked. But notice not only did you not have spiritual life, you actually followed Satan. Paul says that you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And because of who you were following, you then lived in the passions of the flesh. Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. You see, the way that you lived made you a child of wrath. So Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that's pretty hopeless. But that was our condition. Even if you became a follower of Christ at age six, that truly was your spiritual condition. However, here's the good news. 
by the grace of God, God did something radical and he changed all of that. By an act of unfathomable grace, God made you spiritually alive with Christ. Look at verses four and five. Some of the most encouraging words in scripture. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Notice here what, here's what God did. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, the reason that you are now able to respond to God and to follow him and to live for him is because you have been made spiritually alive in Jesus Christ. I think this is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is what? Christ. See, you've been enabled by the power of Christ to do absolutely everything that God calls you to do. You can now seek him and you can obey him and you can submit to him and you can follow him and you can serve him and you can worship him. Why? Because as Galatians 2.20 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. His purpose is now my purpose. His priorities are now my priorities. This changes everything. So your identity is Jesus Christ because you died with him and because you are alive through him. Third, if you are a follower of Christ, your identity is Jesus Christ because you walk in him. And Paul says, going on in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This describes how the new me, the me who is now alive in Christ, practically lives for him. It is by faith in the Son of God. Some translations say by faith of the Son of God. I really believe it's by faith in the Son of God. So your identity is essential for how you live out your life. Now, what are some of the things that are involved in living by faith in the Son of God? Let me just suggest a few. Living by faith in the Son of God involves living your life in light of the gospel. In other words, it means living as one who has been completely forgiven by God through Jesus Christ. Haven't you noticed how some Christians live as though they're still under condemnation? I mean, they go around acting as if God really doesn't like them that much at all. They're miserable. But living by faith in the Son of God means living with the confidence that what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross was enough. It's living with the confidence that there's nothing left for me to do to become accepted by God. There's no hoops to jump through to try to earn God's favor. It's resting in the fact that my salvation has been secured and my future is certain. This is living in light of the gospel. Second, living by faith in the Son of God also involves trusting God to finish what he started in you. In other words, it's living with the confidence that God is, in fact, at work in my life, conforming me to the image of his Son. 
It's saying with Paul in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So walking by faith means that I trust God with everything that I experience, even those things that are difficult and painful, because I understand that they are all part of God's good purpose of conforming me to the image of his son. But I think third, living by faith in the son of God also involves relying on Christ when you encounter opposition. You see, Satan wants to destroy your faith. However, because you are in Christ, Christ's life is your life and his power is now your power. This means that in him, you have the protection that you need to stand against the opposition of this enemy. And a key piece of that protection is faith. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul here uses the, the, uh, the picture, if you will, of a soldier's shield to illustrate how faith is essential to living in this fallen world. It is to be taken up in all circumstances to stand victorious against our enemy's opposition. So yes, there will be opposition, but 1 John 5, 4 says that living by faith overcomes the world. Now we may lose a few battles along the way, but because Jesus won the war, we win because we are in him. So your identity is in Jesus Christ because you died with him, because you are alive in him, and because you walk in him, and finally, your identity is Jesus Christ because you were purchased by him. You were purchased by him. Notice Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God, and I love these words, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is fantastic. It's fantastic. The eternal, sovereign king of the universe, the God who spoke everything into existence, actually gave himself for you. Why? Because the all-knowing God who holds all things together actually, eternally, and perfectly, and personally loves you. Let that sink in. This reality is so incredible that it is impossible to fully comprehend. The Apostle John exclaimed this great love. In 1 John 3, 1, he said, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. He didn't have any other way to describe it. He just says, Behold, look, see the great love that God has lavished on us. So what would cause the second person of the Godhead to leave the splendor of heaven, to humble himself and enter into this world as a man? What would cause the Lord of glory to be willing to be despised and rejected and blasphemed and murdered? It was his love for sinners like you and me. 
You see, the most significant way that God is glorified is by redeeming sinful people like us who wanted nothing to do with him. In order for you to be rescued from an eternal punishment in hell, the Son of God willingly gave himself for you. The eternal God of heaven humbled himself was conceived in a womb, was birthed as a baby, who grew as a man, all so that he could be crucified as Savior. See, out of his love for you, Jesus was willing to go to the cross to satisfy the Father's righteous wrath toward you and your sin. He was willing to take upon himself every evil thought that you conceived, every twisted motive you ever had, and every perverse action you ever committed, and then be punished by the Father for it. That's horrific. Has there ever been in all creation a greater expression of love? No. You see, God doesn't love you in response to your love for him. He loved you before you could ever love him. He loved you before you were ever born. He loved you while you were still his enemy. That's why John says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. What this means is that God's love for you is not based on who you are. It's not based on how you perform. It is based on who he is. And so now, because of his love, which is eternal, there is absolutely nothing that can ever separate you from his love. Nothing you ever do will cause God to love you less than he does. And nothing that you can ever do will cause God to love you more than he does. But here's the deal. Since Jesus gave himself for you, What this means is that you no longer belong to yourself. He purchased you through his death, which means you belong to him. He owns the rights to your life. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So what's the response to having been purchased? Paul says, so glorify God in your body. See, God didn't give his son for you so that you would just waste your life by living for yourself, by excluding him. He gave his son so that you would be his. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you've been born again this morning, this is your identity. You died with Christ. You are alive through Christ. You walk in Christ because you have been purchased by Christ. Well, maybe you've never been born again. You assume that by coming to church, that by learning the Bible, by being a good person, that God will be impressed with you and will accept you. 
The grim reality is that one day you're going to stand before God and the basis of whether you will spend eternity with him in heaven or apart from him in hell will be this. Are you in Christ? You see, this is first base. It's first base. In the 1924 World Series, the New York Giants and the Washington Senators were tied after six games. During game seven, the score at the bottom of the ninth was tied. It was three to three, and Washington was the home team, and they were up to bat. After the first two batters made outs, a player named Leon Goose Goslin came to the plate. With a count 2-2, Goslin slammed the fifth pitch into left center field. It hit the wall just below the top and fell back into the field of play. Goslin rounded the bases, and the third base coach waved him home for an inside-the-park home run. The shortstop for the Senators cut off the throw, fired the ball home. Goslin slid into the plate a split second before the tag, but the umpire delayed the call. After consulting the other umpires, he cried, You're out! The Washington manager, his team, and several fans then rushed onto the field protesting the call. Finally, the umpire quieted the crowd and then announced, ladies and gentlemen, the batter is out because he failed to touch first base. See, if you haven't been saved, you haven't touched first base. What this means is that you are a child of wrath who is still in your sins. And one day you're going to stand before your judge at the great white throne judgment. You will then be called out. You will be cast into the lake of fire and spend the rest of eternity in outer darkness along with Satan and his angels. But this doesn't have to be the rest of your story. You can become forever identified with Jesus Christ and experience eternal life in him. So will you respond to Christ's love? Will you embrace him by faith today? My appeal to you is to cry out to God. Ask him to save you. Surrender your life to him. Turn from your sin. Be crucified with Christ and die to the old you and experience the eternal life of Christ as a new creation in him. Will you? If you're a believer this morning, this should be a great source of motivation for you to actually recognize that you are complete in Christ and to rejoice that he fully accepts you on the basis of his son and to live exclusively for him. It should be a motivation for you to Tell the world about him. It should be a motivation for you to live your life with the confidence that everything that you experience has been sovereignly superintended by the one who owns you. Will you rejoice this morning and praise God that you're in Christ? You're no longer your own. And that everything that you do now in life is to glorify and honor and praise him.
who loved you and gave himself for you. Father, we thank you this morning for this short verse and the incredible truths that it contains. We're thankful that we now have life in Christ, a spiritual kind of life, an eternal quality of life. We thank you, God, for what you have done to purchase us and to make us your own. And for those who are hearing this, who are estranged from you, who are outside of Christ, God, would you do that incredible, miraculous work by regenerating them and granting to them spiritual life so that they repent and believe in the one who gave himself for them. We ask this in Christ's powerful name for his glory. Amen. Amen.